Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Okay, I'm back. Did you get the right key this time? They assured me this one was it. And they apologized for the mix-up. Okay, good. Because that was really awkward. I know, right? Walking into a room with someone else's stuff in it? I mean, I hope that has never happened to us before. You know, on the flip side. I gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I told them about it and said we weren't going to be sharing a place with anyone. It's not New York in the 60s. We wanted our own room. That's what we paid for. They didn't get your reference, did they? Not even a little bit. That's okay. At least they gave you a new set of keys. Here we are. 1141. Please let this room be empty. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the classic show, Promises, Promises. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. The moment we wake up before we put on our makeup, we say a little prayer for you, listener, and hopefully your prayers have been answered with today's show. We're taking you way back to the swinging 60s and then returning to the 2000s with what many consider to be one of the first pop musicals. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. You know the drill. First, we need to set things up. The show was based on a 1960s film called The Apartment. The original choreography was done by Michael Bennett. A song from the show, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, was recorded by Dionne Warwick and reached number six on the charts. For the revival, which is what we will be focusing on, the design team assembled was as followed. Music by Burt Bacharach, lyrics by Hal David, book by Neil Simon, Directed and choreographed by Rob Ashford. Set by Scott Pask. Costumes by Bruce Pask. Lights by Donald Holder. Sound design by Bria Ronan. Hair by Tom Watson. And makeup by Ashley Ryan. The original production first opened on Broadway on December 1st, 1968 at the Schubert Theater. It ran for 1,281 performances, closing on January 1st, 1972. The revival arrived at the Broadway Theater on April 25th, 2010, where it played for 289 performances, closing on January 2nd, 2011. The original was nominated for eight Tony Awards, winning Best Featured Actress and Best Actor. The Revival would be nominated for four Tony Awards and would earn one for Best Featured Actress for Katie Finneran, who played Marge McDougal. So with that, let's delve into the show. (music) 
Chuck Baxter is an ambitious bachelor and junior executive for a large insurance company, Consolidated Life, who expresses his frustrations and hopes for a career advancement. To curry favor with higher-ups in the company, he allows his apartment to be used for their romantic trysts in return for a promise of promotion. Chuck has his eye set on Fran Kubelik, a waitress in the company cafeteria whom he's always admired from a distance. While talking together, she wonders if she will ever find someone to share her life with. Chuck hopes that she might notice him. J.D. Sheldrake, the company's powerful personal director, notices the glowing reviews written by Chuck's superiors and deduces the reason for them. He requests sole use of the apartment for his affairs in exchange for Chuck's long-awaited promotion and tickets to a basketball game. In the 2010 revival, the song I Say a Little Prayer for You was added for a scene in which Fran tells female workmates about flowers she has received from a new mystery individual. Chuck asks Fran to attend the basketball game with him, and she agrees to meet him after first having a drink with her soon-to-be ex-lover. Fran's lover turns out to be the married Sheldrake. Fran wants to end the relationship, but Sheldrake talks her into spending the evening with him. Though Fran stands him up, Chuck forgives her. When he informs the other executives that his apartment is no longer available for their use, they express dismay. Meanwhile, Sheldrake wonders why he is drawn to affairs. The scene shifts to the company Christmas party where everyone is enjoying themselves. Miss Olson, Sheldrake's secretary, reveals to Fran that she is simply the latest in a long line of Sheldrake's mistresses. The first act curtain falls as Fran is driven to misery and Chuck discovers that Fran is one of Sheldrake's mistress, uh, one of the people Sheldrake has been taking to his apartment. Act two starts with a despondent Chuck spending Christmas Eve trying to drink away his troubles at a bar where he meets another tipsy, lonely heart, Marge McDougal, who agrees to come back to his apartment. In the meantime, at Chuck's apartment, Fran confronts Mr. Sheldrake about his earlier affairs. While he admits to the affairs, he declares his love for Fran, but tells her that he must leave in order to catch his train to spend Christmas Eve with his family. A despairing Fran discovers Chuck's sleeping pills and takes the whole bottle. When Chuck arrives with Marge, he discovers Fran on his bed. After quickly disposing of Marge, a frantic Chuck gets his neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, to come over, and together they save her life. The next morning, Chuck calls Sheldrake to let him know what happened. Sheldrake says he can't leave for the city without his wife knowing, and asks Chuck to take care of Fran. Over the next few days, Chuck and Dreyfus try to keep Fran's spirits up to prevent a relapse into suicidal behavior. Chuck and Fran play gin rummy and discuss their problems, growing closer. Mr. Kirkby, one of Chuck's former clients, discovers that Fran has been staying at Chuck's apartment, so as revenge for cutting him and the others off from using the apartment, he tells Fran's overly protective brother where she has been staying. Carl Kubelik then comes to the apartment to collect her, and believing that Chuck is the cause for her current state, he punches Chuck. Miss Olson soon discovers that Sheldrake's actions led to Fran almost killing herself. 
She quits her job and tells Mrs. Sheldrake all about her husband's affairs. She leaves him, resulting in his desperation to woo Fran back. Sheldrake asks for the keys to Chuck's apartment again on New Year's Eve to take Fran there. Chuck refuses and quits his job rather than allow Sheldrake to take Fran to his apartment ever again. Deciding that he has to get away, Chuck begins packing to move elsewhere when Fran comes to see him. Sheldrake had told her that Chuck had refused him access and quit, and she realizes that Chuck is the one who really loves her. As they resume their earlier game of gin, he declares his love for her, to which he repl- she replies, Shut up and deal. The, the end. So, let us now discuss the show. Do, 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 turkey lurkey. <laughs> Um, I have to be honest, I don't remember too much of this show in particular, but I do remember thinking that it was really cute and like a quirky show. It's so, like, boppy and... Yeah, I mean, my main, like, thing I remember watching it for the first time was like, why am I watching a show about this? It's, it's so, look, you're gonna hear this phrase from me a lot, it's so 60s. It's such a 60s story, it's such a 60s tale... You know, when we do think of the 60s, like, there's two kind of things you're thinking of. you got the hippie era kind of thing going on, but then you've also got a kind of the, I'd like to say, the breakdown of the social norms in the sense of we're exposing, you know, the quintessential Leave it to Beaver family before it's the quintessential Leave it to Beaver family. You know, that corporate America is a little bit sleazy, backdoor dealing affairs. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is definitely like Mad Men, totally Mad Men era, and it's sexist, <clears throat> and it's all about yeah. Sexual Leave It to Beaver was 1950s. Well, I mean, that, but but in the 60s, that's what I mean. Is we're break, we're leaving Leave It to Beaver, we're moving into Mad Men, where you know women were obviously objectified in the 50s. There's no doubt about that. But in the 60s, it's much the sexual revolution is upon us, and we're not so much hiding it like we necessarily might have been in the 50s. Yes. And 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 so this is a show that rather than kind of revolts and everything was more embracing it and we're kind of laughing about it I guess. It's it's kind of like a farce about affairs and everything like that but it's like oh my god no but this really happened like the family was kept in the suburbs and the men were in the city and they were fooling around. You know what I mean? Like I have yeah. a long lunch. Now what you have is your secretary. You know, it's, it's, I'm just having some rest time. Well, then where's your secretary at or this colleague? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Like, this is the, here we are. When women came into the workplace, they weren't necessarily good workers. They were used as objects. I mean, we don't know anything about their work ethic. We don't know if they're good workers or not because the men were only seeing them as... Exactly. So, to me, this is a show that more focused on that end of the world rather than focusing on uh, that, that, that change that was taking place. Okay. Um, so I, you know, like I said, to me, the story was a little simple and floppy. Um, 
I don't want to say whimsical. It was just silly and fun. I don't think there was any like gravitas to it. You didn't like leave me like, oh, I'm a changed person. I never want to cheat on my wife or something. It's just, in a way, it is a little bit of an escape musical because it is kind of fun. But everything works out in the end. People mm-hmm. get their just desserts. Mm-hmm. The right thing is done, you know. Um, and and yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's almost like no harm, no foul. Kinda, yeah, kinda. You know, and and yeah, so it's just simple. It's not dark. It's it's just bordering on dark, but it doesn't quite get dark. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, even the Christmas party where we're doing the turkey lurkey song. It's chaos and everybody's drunk and womanizing and handsy and everything, but at the same time, it's right. It's just I mean, fun. like it's, it's turkey lurkey time. Tom Turkey went away and he just got home. Yeah, but it's just fun and we're all in miniskirts and da, da, it's the '60s and free love and whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's not shaded in that dark light. It's still just shaded in that hee hee fun. This is what office culture is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we should definitely talk about. The entire setup of the show, though, um, starting with the set. Yeah, again, I told you you're going to hear this from me. It's very 60s. It's quintessentially (laughs) 1960s. But it was also very simple. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't have these giant, and when I say like giant sets, I think of like Lincoln Center sets that are like fully realized roof. Spaces. They're basically maybe even lacking, they may be lacking a roof, they may have a roof, who knows. But they're basically lacking the roof and then the fourth wall, which obviously we are. But they basically have the entire room there. This set, I mean, was just simple. Like, here's a door that says consolidated life. Right. Or here's a desk. Here's a wall. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the Broadway theater is a huge stage. So they weren't. They weren't bringing in these huge giant flats and occupying occupying the entire stage. They were using something very simple to set up. You know, here's where you are. I don't want to say it was minimalistic, but it was simple, and it was just enough to um, give us an idea of where we were, what we were doing, and all of that. I think the most furnished place, honestly, was the apartment. Yeah. You know, um, but it was cute. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, the lights were very fun, very pastel. Colory. Yeah, I was going to say again, very 60s. Very they soft. They were soft, but then there was a very electric and colorful when they needed it, like in Turkey Lurkey, mm-hmm. uh, which I love that my computer auto-corrected it to Turkey Turkey. Right. Lurkey <laughs> is a <laughs> word. <laughs> um, I, I do, I faintly remember like that backdrop during the Christmas party almost reminding me of that old show that Lily T- Tyler. Lily Tomlin? Lily Tomlin was on Laugh Laugh Out. Remember when they used to like poke their head through a wall and they'd tell a oh, joke? Oh yeah. I think it's called Laugh Out. I don't remember. But yeah, they, you know, they, they, it was a very 1960s like giant wall in like these octagon shapes, and people would just like poke their head through a door and they'd tell a joke to the other person poking their head through a yeah. door. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just it kind of reminded me of that a little bit, just that scene. So, you know, there's that. And then you partner the set, the lights, with the choreography. Now, the choreography was really, really cool. Uh, yeah. It was fun and flirty. And I don't think we've mentioned this enough. Did we mention that it was 60s? Right. Well, and I mean, I just, I the thing I remember is kind of the, the billowy <laughs> skirts, like the puffed out mini skirts, and then uh, like Kristen Chenoweth's tiny little legs. Yes. Just these tiny little legs with this giant skirt dancing. Well... 
to focus more on the choreography, I just remember like the the go-go dancing kind of look. These you know these little arm movements that you know they would the elbows were tucked in, but we were swinging the arms to the left and to the right. right. It was that that it it had remnants of Fosse, but not. Well, it, it was, wasn't fuzzy. It was 60s. It was that 60s thing that we're getting away where, you know, before we were just starting to twist in the 50s and, oh, we have hips. Now the 60s, we were exploring more of that movement, you know, and we we're going underwater with all of this, you know, and it was exploring that. And you still had this, this Broadway-esque thing with these extensions and these big dance numbers, but they were definitely incorporating a lot of these 60 gyrating and If you guys could see the that. dance moves that he's doing, you would understand exactly, but I, I just can't describe it to give it justice. Think Austin Powers' party scene. Like, it was definitely one of those. See, in my mind, I keep thinking the Frug from Sweet Charity, yes. but not as stylized. Yes, 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 yes. But, you know, they it, it was just, it looked like a big swingers party from Austin Powers, where they're all... You know, yeah, the, baby. You know. And then you already brought up the costumes, but yeah, the, I remember the the sleek pencil skirt dresses, and then like the beehive done up mm-hmm. hair. But then they with had the, the pencil in it, and right? Then, but then they had like the tight push course, up bras. Well, and the tight the tight tops with like the mini skirts that were yep, yep, puffed yep. out, but they were just shorter. And the men in the suits, <clears throat> uh, a couple of them with the skinny ties. Yes, those terrible the glasses. skinny ties. Isn't and those, the black rim glasses. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the only time I think of the black room glasses, I only every time I see it, I think of two things: Kennedy and NASA. That's it. Anytime I see them, that's all I can think of. Because I feel like anytime we've seen like a film about Kennedy or NASA, there's always someone with those black glasses, you know. Um, <coughs> but yeah, it it was highly stylized. Um, oh, and the other thing I do remember is the hair. Not only being the beehive, but it was. Big and quaffed, and it just had the sense of Jackie O, if that makes sense. Right, because everything was, like, very sleek and polished and put together, but had that iconic flip. Yes, 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 yes. You know, it just, like, really tied down to the ears, and then, whoop, you know, and then we did have pillbox hats, too, and I was just like, ah, yes, this this time period, you know, and, and you had the gloves at certain points, which was really nice, so... It's still, you know, we were all doing in the show that everybody was doing kind of sleazy things, but then they were also like, but we're still proper ladies and gentlemen. Right, because this is very 60s. Yeah. (laughs) And then finally, I mean, the music. It it sounds weird to say, but it's true. The music is iconic. This music from the show, people recognize. um, It today is more like easy listening, dare I say, elevator music, you know. Right, but it was... It was the beginnings of pop. Well, pop, and even, to be fair, at that time, it was known at that time as rock. You know, it... Eh, but, but I think that it's confusing to call it rock Well, in hindsight. Rock and roll now is a different thing than what it was. But again, in the, in the interest of knowing, knowing thine roots, the beat and the style... Back in the that time, that was that was rock and roll. I mean, if you listen to early Rolling Stones, who were rock, Burt Bacharach is, is rock and just as good. You know, um, I would say even now in hindsight, it's closer to light rock at that period, but it's still it's considered and and especially in the Broadway world, this is, you know, Ethel Merman would not be caught singing some of these songs. Correct, but. Um, you know, our next episode. Well, yes, yes, yeah. We're not going to give that away. But I digress. Um, I love that this, at this, you know, just to give you an idea of the history at this point, 
this was one of the last musicals to have music in the popular top 40. And even now we recognize songs from it, and, and, and not just because it's from a musical, but because it's just, a pop song. Did you say the last musical? One of. Okay. One of. It's 1968-1969. You know, prior to this, musicals were definitely in America's top 40. What was on Broadway was definitely being heard on the radios and whatnot. People were all about it. And at this point, everything's changing, you know. It, America wasn't necessarily wanting to listen to what's just on Broadway. They wanted to know what the Beatles are doing, the Stones, the Who, the Monkees, you know, Janis Joplin, all this kind of thing. And so this was changing. So this is when Broadway's kind of going off the airwaves, if you will. You know, I think a lot of people, especially our listeners, anywhere you are, you're going to be hard-pressed to find Broadway music on the regular airwaves. You know, I know that it's on satellite radio or whatnot or Spotify, but, you know, get on the old, fire up the old FM radio and, and see... Right, if you... well, and it wasn't its own subgenre. Right, and so you've got songs like I'll Never Fall in Love, Promises, Promises. This was a main... These were mainstream songs. And even today... They're still, you know, recognized. They're still used. I, you know, I brought up Austin Powers for the dancing. Well, heck, in the second movie, Burt Bacharach and Eric Clapton sing uh, I'll Never Fall in Love. You know, right there um, while they dance on the street. And yeah, it's the 60s, but I'm like, they're not doing Promises, Promises. They're just singing one of their hit songs, like one of Burt Bacharach's hit songs. And I'm like, that's... That, that's an Easter egg on two levels. Like, you know, you know. You know. Mm-hmm. So the music is, in that sense, top-notch. And it's just, it's fun. It's not going to inspire you. I don't think it's going to inspire you to make art. It's just easy listening, good fun, happy times. The show has had several notable cast members, including Jerry Orbach. Jerry! Uh, Donna McKinney, uh, Bayork Lee, Sean Hayes, Kristen Chenoweth. Good luck. You can do it. Brooks Ashmancasis. Ashmancas. Ashmancasas. I feel so bad because Courtney can say his name perfectly. I cannot. I'm sorry to Brooks Ashmancas. I can't say Ashmancas. Wow, we're awful. We're terrible people. So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Look, you and I keep going back and forth about this, but I'm sorry (coughs) for my musical theater history class. To our research, I'm still going to defend this. It's still considered one of the first rock and roll musicals. Now, I know where you're going with this. The show we're going to talk about next week is the first rock and roll musical, and I'm not going to take that away. But this was one of the first rock and roll musicals. But it was not the The first. first. No. And also, I just can't... In good conscience, uh, conscience, define this as rock and roll. Hey, the song Blue Moon is a rock and roll song. You consider that a rock and roll song? No. Grease is a rock and roll musical. And here's the thing. Basically, a rock and roll musical, I mean, I don't think it's changed, is anything that's electrified. 
But I disagree. I don't think that that is but the, that's the definition tr- anymore. Uh, it may and not. I would it. love to see the the researched it. article that has people classifying it as rock and roll because I could not find it. I would have to. I mean that. Like I said, I learned that in my class. I'm guessing that my. I was in that same class. I'm guessing my professor got it from Broadway, The American Musical, that book. But unfortunately, that's back home, and I have to drive everything out. Right, but I was in that same class, and I don't remember that. I do. And this is the thing. Rock and roll musicals at that time were defined by anything that's electrified. And of course, we've got a bass and a guitar that are electrified at this point. And I know, again, 50 years later, that see, or 60 years later, excuse me, wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> 60 years later, that seems ridiculous because everything on Broadway is electrified. You know, I get it. But at this time... That's not the case. In fact, at this time, you're also having the advent of microphones and amplification. Um, Two great autobiographies I encourage people to read are Ethel Merman's uh, biography and uh, I'm Still Here, the Elaine Stritch biography. Now, both actors... Still here? Is it still here or I'm still here? Sorry, still here. here. Um, Elaine Stritch was a little more... uh, like for a mic, wearing a mic, but she did not like having like a mic up on her head. She preferred it to be like a lapel, but that's not here nor there. Um, but she still is from uh, the genre, the class of, you know, I learned how to sing to the balcony um, so that they could hear me like diction and, and shake the rafters and everything. I don't need a mic. Ethel Merman was incredibly against miking performers. If you can't be heard, she thought, you didn't have a you didn't belong on the stage. And I don't think Merman understood that like with the direction that the theater was going with electrifying the orchestra and the sound effects and all that, it was necessary to mic a performer. And then of course now what we know, you know, a fifteen hundred seat theater to keep the actor's voice healthy. Yeah, a mic really helped. You know, I'm not saying that an actor shouldn't have the ability to at least go 10 rows back, but sitting in the St. James Theater, I'm okay if that mic, that actor's mic, because good Lord, sometimes you do need that softness for that subtle Right, moment. I mean, think of Bring Him Home without that subtle, soft high note at the end. Right. Like, if he had to belt that so that you could hear... It as crisp as it is, you know. Yeah, in the back, you might think, "Oh, this is a beautiful moment," but in the front row, you might be like, "Why is he shouting?" So, to bring it all back around, as I understand it, rock and roll is defined as electrified orchestrations, and you know, technically, this is electrified orchestrations. So, it gets to be in that group. And if you look at the musicals that exist at that time, if you don't qualify it as a rock and roll musical, what do you qualify it as? I think pop musical. I And see, the music at that time wasn't qualified as pop. It was still on the rock charts. Well, because the pop, the pop genre... Didn't exist. It was... It was didn't it was exist. cultivating and it was lear- it was it beginning exist. to exist. It was in its birth. It didn't exist at the time. No, ma'am. So I stick by it. Was it's considered one of the first rock and roll musicals, even though by today's standards we hear that music and we go, "That really isn't rock and roll." Okay, fair. I will also challenge it with this: 
in the Heights considered the first hip-hop musical. But what was the first hip-hop song ever performed on Broadway? Pretty sure you're about to work that show. But he doesn't know the territory, territory, territory. That was the first... The, uh, I, I mean, that it's can still be considered the first rap con- on Broadway. But it's still considered a pattern song, which a is different. A patter diff- song. Yes, a patter song that is different than rap. I didn't say rap, I said hip-hop. And why? what's the difference between hip-hop and patter? There's a lot, and we could we could discuss a lot of things. I'm just about saying, it. it's it's razor thin, and it's a difference of sixty, seventy years, but they're so similar, you know. There's, they're not. They're they're not. There's I, not. I I I would love to sit here and hear what Lin Manuel Miranda has to say about the opening of her in the Music Man. And do you consider it sort of a hip hop song? The fact no. that it's all spoken, spoken in rhythm, similar. But there's a difference between hip hop and rap. And what is that? It uh, has to do with the musical interludes in the background and the way that the songs flow. Okay. Hip-hop feels more like um, like music, a musical scrapbook, whereas rap is more like a... Word spoken in rhythm to a beat. Yes, and that's and, very different. So then this is the like, first. So the Music Man had the first rap song on Broadway. That I could consent to that. The diff- Yeah, so I just think the Music Man has much more street cred than any other musical on Broadway because until you get to Hamilton <coughs> and holler if you hear me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. What what year did the Music Man originally premiere? And oh, it was way ahead of its time with rap. Bringing it back. It doesn't sound like it's that style of music today, but it's amazing the difference of time. And there is music from this ju- this period of time that we called rock and roll that today we're just like, mm, maybe not. And there's music that we've heard. I mean, there's music in the 80s that they called rock and roll that now we call different things. We call it emo. We call it punk. We call it... Um, Emo and punk are subgenres of rock. The things you're thinking of are things like Duran Duran, yeah, I'm trying to think of that. Uh, new wave, new there we wave, go. new wave, and pop. They, they still that's... call it, they still called it rock and roll though, and 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 we go no, that's this now. We can hindsight is is 2020, but they still labeled still it then. I still say show me the article, but I digress. We should move on. Yes, I'm sorry. We got on a whole sub thing, and our listeners probably are like, okay, you guys have a lot of issues to sort out. It created, okay, going back, it created several of the most well-known songs in musical theater, uh, in the musical theater tomes, including I'll Never Fall in Love, I Say a Little Prayer, and Promises, Promises, just to name a few. That's three. Okay. Where's the other seven? I'm sorry, where's the other? I can't math. Wow, I wish you guys could have seen her hand. She's holding up three, and then she holds up her other hand and goes, seven. I said... Okay, we're Several, four. not seven. <laughs> you calm down over there, you loopy. Listen, not, these are the hills I will die on. No, not every musical, you know, contributes these really big popular songs to the tomes of musical theater, but this one did. Um, I always loved when I taught music when people would recognize pop songs, and I go, "Did you know that was in a musical first? What? Yes, why? Yes, it was. And let me tell you about that music, you know." Uh, I also think this show, I'll Die on This Hill, introduced rock and roll dancing to the stage. 
with the the gyrations and the movements and everything that stylized dancing that american bandstand dancing and everything show me that the musical we talk about next week yeah stuck on that mm. got you there didn't i i mean listen i think in order to do that we'd have to do a complete history of uh, the progression of dance without erasing black voices. All right, that's a fair point. Because I can see the rock, high ground. Yes, <laughs> rock and roll, especially rock and roll dancing, especially bandstand dancing, like you're talking about, that progressed yes, yes. from uh, people of color. And I do not know any sh- of what other shows were playing at that time that may have exactly. Had so okay. we have to do no, our history. No. Ah, mm, ah, ah, how you like that? So stay tuned. We're going to be writing a book to cover this. Let's move on to societal impact then. Um, I think this show depicted women in a lightly empowered and feminist way. Lightly. Right. They're still objects, but at the same time, they do have some power. The fact that the secretary stands up. uh, Fran says no. Yeah. the, the, The fact that Fran actually made a choice and it turned out positively for her was yeah. definitely a point in the column for the matriarchy versus the patriarchy. Yeah. So that's, you know, positives there. I also thought that it drew attention to the misbehavior and sexism that existed in the workplace and uh, sadly the sex- still exists today. Yes, I definitely think so, especially in the time period in which the show was first produced and performed to kind of be that blatant about like, hey, this stuff isn't okay to do. You Again, know. Uh, theater will hold up the mirror and tell the honesty about what's going on in the world right then and there. You can't get mad at the theater because it's like, we're just artists. We just interpret things as we see them. We have no opinion. We're just, here it is, you know. So the next question is, is this show relevant? I don't think so. I, I Yeah, I honestly don't think it's it, it's relevant here on Broadway. Possibly in a regional setting because it's, it's bubbly and it's hee-hee fun, but... But I don't think it's worth petu- perpetuating the stereotypes and the and the things that are, you know, that the story relies on. I don't well, think that here's it's the thing. worth that. I think it's perfect for college or high schools as well as maybe community theaters because of the recognizable songs, the floppy storyline, and the fun choreography that suits those venues well. But I agree with you... Especially in this era of like Me Too and everything like that, we have to be careful with the message that we peddle or we choose to put on. You know, it might be just that, oh, I love that music, or oh, that's fun dancing, or something like that. And, you know, that, that might be the case, but it's like, yeah, but what's the overall message in there? Is that appropriate to say or do? And I will say, possibly college possibly communities but i do not think a high school at all should touch this and purely because you have young women who are easily subjected to different things they already have plenty of things telling them that they need to put out for boys and blah 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 they don't need something like this showing them that oh you know you could consider it kind of empowerment by you know, uh, I'm not going to go down and, the social so rabbit hole. I, I could say the college that, then is just as bad. I mean, I agree, but I could possibly concede to it purely because there are there are less impressionable minds Fair. at work because they're at least in college you're taught to question why, which I think is very important. But in high yeah. school you're not, so I don't think that high schools should Fair. perform this. And I think that 
if you're going to perform it as a community, there needs to be a caveat or some sort of attention drawn to it. If you make it the point and the message so you can alter it to be against it, I'm down for that. I don't think that you should be doing this show just as a fun fluff. You should not be doing it as fun fluff. You should use it to say a message or don't do it at all because I don't think that the content of the show is worth it. You shouldn't alter the content. I'm I'm not saying alter it as in like the way you're altering the text. I think if you're going to do it, you need to frame it. Okay, because I didn't say I'm I'm wholly against altering content. If you you are, um, if, if some content or whatever, if there's a piece of the work that you are against, you don't get to change it. That's the artist's work. And if you feel that you can't do it because of this, that, and the other, then just don't do it. There's a reason why there are productions of, like, Swanee and things, you know, from a different bygone era that aren't done anymore because they're just not... You can't do them anymore. They're not appropriate in any sense of the imagination. 100%. And that's what I'm saying. If you're going to do this show, I think that you need to frame it I'm not saying alter it. I'm saying frame it in a way that calls the attention to the real issue, which is the patriarchy. Well, and I think you're going to struggle with that because then you'd have to alter the dialogue. But I don't think you'd have to. I think that you can definitely do it in a in some alternative ways, and I think that um, there are plenty of people out there who can find them, but I think that if you're not going to do that, this show is not worth performing because the subject is not well enough. And listen... At the end of the day, I love Neil Simon's work. I, I love, love Neil, Neil Simon. Simon. And so for me to be able to say that, you know that there's got to be a good reason. Yeah. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. We saw the show just the once in 2010. Um, I mainly wanted to see the show because one of my favorite actors, Sean Hayes, was in it. I love Sean Hayes. Little Jack. Um, He was great. I thought he was wonderful. And then after the show, he came out and signed the program, shook my hand, and I didn't want to wash my hand for weeks and weeks. Disgusting. (laughs) He was so nice, and he was so wonderful on stage. And then the other big thing I remember from the show was of course, the wonderful and talented Kristen Chenoweth was in it. Well, after the show, you know, we're at the Kiss and Cry line. Um, and she gave a wonderful performance. And her car is there waiting because, you know, she's Kristen Chenoweth. Of course she has her own car. And they, like, rush her out of the stage but door. they're carrying her yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put her in the car. And we're all like, this is weird. And she's waving. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I would sign your stuff. I'm so sorry. I have a broken toe. And we're like, what? And we come to find out that she had broken her toe during the first act, um, but she kept doing the show. And I mean, look, <clears throat> these weren't flats. She was in like three inch heels with broken toe, singing and dancing, doing her thing. And I'm, yeah, smiling, hitting all the marks, all the notes. And I was like, that is impressive. That is ridiculously impressive. So even with the broken toe in the back seat of her car, she was bubbly and happy and so sweet. And I was like, yeah, go to the hospital. <laughs> go go be well. Right. But I think that was really the most remarkable part of the show for me was seeing uh, Sean Hayes and Kristen Chenoweth. Yeah. Everything else, it it didn't really leave an impression on me. Nah. I, so. Yeah. But, I mean, I it, it was 
11 years ago and I'm just an old man. I bet if I went up to Lincoln Center and I watched the show again, I'd be like, oh yeah, I remember this. You know, the fact that um, the actress that played McDougal got a Tony, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm just not remembering that role, but I'm sure I was like, oh my gosh, yes. You know, so, but I, I did enjoy that evening. I do remember that. I wasn't. I didn't leave disappointed. I didn't leave like, mm, wow. So, yeah, just the show itself didn't leave it, much of an impression. Yeah, I wasn't. My life wasn't changed, but I got to meet Sean Hayes. <laughs> With things continuing to return to normal, we hope to see the show again. You'll be able to catch promises, promises, if you go up to Lincoln Center to see the show, because I'm not gonna say someone's gonna perform it. <laughs> We would also like to give an update on the continued happenings here on Broadway. The King of Pop has officially made his Broadway debut as MJ the Musical is now playing at the Neil Simon Theater. You can hear more about this and many other shows on our bonus podcast episodes, The Broadway Bulletin, out every Tuesday and Saturday. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Quantum Jazz, Mela, and Billy Murray.